You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This, this, this is, is The Hour. You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour. With Resident Advisor. Hello and welcome to The Hour. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. The Hour is our brand new podcast. We'll be putting one of these out each month as part of the exchange. And you can expect a blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews, and lots of other things besides. Unlike the exchange, there won't be a set format on The Hour. Instead, it will be a constantly shifting blend of different features that will simply reflect what's exciting us each month. On today's show, I'll be finding out how a church in East London became one of the best venues for live electronic music in the UK. Will Lynch, RA's associate editor, spends an afternoon at Record Loft in Berlin, and some of RA's editorial team will be discussing who or what has defined 2016 for them so far. But ahead of all of that, one of the regular features we're running on the hour is something we're calling One Question, where we gather five people from across the dance music industry and ask them a difficult question. To kick us off, I ask five people, what, in your view, is the best festival in the world? Here's Josie Rebell, host of Rinse FM Sunday Morning Show. In my opinion, the best festival in the world is Dimensions Festival. I've been playing there since uh, the very first one, I think five years ago this year and um, from the moment that I just was on the site and I just saw how absolutely incredible it was it just it just blew my mind just on looks alone that whole setting the Roman amphitheatre and the beautiful fort my highlight was a couple of years ago where I was playing in the fort arena one and I was playing uh, before K Tronada and I just remember being up on the stage and just thinking like literally I'm just so happy I'm like so so happy and then there were kind of flashes in the sky and everyone was like screaming because it was like some kind of laser show in the sky but what we realized afterwards is that it was a massive thunderstorm actually and when Cage Renata came on afterwards a massive bolt of lightning came and literally took out the entire stage then the heavens opened and we were all screaming and running for cover but I just still remember thinking I'm so happy <laughs> I'm just so so happy and I love Dimensions so much. Jorge Nieto, head of club music at Village Underground. The best festival in, in the world for me, I'd have to say, is Glastonbury, because coming from Colombia, before I moved to England, Glastonbury had always been this sort of like massive thing in my imaginarium, and you imagine the big stages, and I used to watch it when I was a kid on the BBC. So for me, it was like, like a goal of my life to come to Glastonbury. And um, at the first time I went, I ended up working there as a stage manager, you know? And uh, I completely fell in love with it because there is so much about Glastonbury that you really don't see, you know? Whatever you get get sold on the TV is really not Glastonbury, that's more like a normal festival. Whatever happens after dark or in Shangri-La or in in the hippie village or all of this this stuff that goes around it is really a a complete massive city. And coming from Colombia, that was absolutely shocking and amazing. The good thing about Glastonbury is that you make plans and the plans always get ruined, you know? So you never get to see whatever we, where you wanted to see and you just end up stumbling on amazing music. And one of the the, fir- the bands that I discovered at Glastonbury and that I fell completely in love with is Goat. You know, I absolutely fell in love with that band in, in the mental state that I was in the moment. It was absolutely perfect. I love it and really let loose there. You know, that's why I love Glastonbury. <laughs> Here's Rob Booth, head A&R at Houndstooth. I would say the best festival in the world is a tie between Unsound and Free Rotation. Free Row is just so intimate. The artists performing Sleep in the Tents alongside us punters, Stevie O and Susie B, who run the festival, just two of the nicest people you could possibly meet. And their programming is second to none. I think they only sell about 800 tickets and that includes a 50-50 boy-girl ratio. And I don't know any other festivals that do this. Unsound, on the other hand, uh, is so much more experimental. It's set in the most stunning city of Krakow. And the Brutalist Hotel Forum, it's exactly my tastes in terms of pushing boundaries in experimental electronic music. Matt Schultz and his team put on a series of daily talks which can range from Mad Mike Banks captivating the entire room to the late night sleep concerts by Robert Rich. Also the choice of venues scattered across the city means you get to soak up Krakow and explore one of the most beautiful cities on earth. Sandy Mauris, booking agent at Coda. My favourite festival is Block. Pretty much all the stories about Block aren't really music related, even though the music there never feels secondary. 
there's a very particular, peculiar British atmosphere at the festival that I don't think you really find anywhere else. The funniest moment for last year's block was after the closing set of the entire festival, my friends dressed as zebras got stuck in the elevator of Ben Clock, and I think the security had to be called. And I don't think you'd probably get that anywhere else. Amy Van Barren, Media Partnerships at Resident Advisor. My name's Amy, and I work on RA's festival partnership team, which makes this a bit of a tricky question, but I'm going to answer it anyway. So last year I went to 15 really good festivals. I'm not going to list them, but I do think that puts me in a pretty good place to be able to chat about what I consider to be the best festival in the world. So ready, right, drumroll, please. For me, it is Movement Detroit. So Detroit obviously needs no introduction to RA readers. It's so inextricably linked to the music that we all love. I remember being so excited on the flight that when going through customs, even the border control guard was laughing at me. So as a South Wales Valleys girl, in case you missed it, um, I literally had to pinch myself as I danced away at the Made in Detroit stage, listening to Robert Hood tear it up with his daughter. The city comes alive during that one weekend and the off-movement parties are as big a draw as the main event, I would say. I can't talk about movement without mentioning Detroit a million times and whereas some festivals you might visit have little or no connection to the city they take place in movement wouldn't exist literally without Detroit and that connection and energy for me was literally palpable you're listening to the hour from resident advisor Through a series of events called St John's Sessions, St John's Church in Hackney, East London, has gained a glowing reputation as a gig space. Chris Vaughan, who's part of 3333, the events company that promotes St John's Sessions, told me about how the whole thing came about. So Chris, how does a Hackney church wind up as one of the best venues to hear live electronic music in London? Uh, it's a good question. I was DJing at Secret Garden Party Festival and there was somebody, I was doing a lot of, like a world music set basically, and there was somebody going mad at the front, looking very happy. Um, and she approached me after the gig and said that I should come and play in her venue in, in Hackney uh, because they wanted to do something for the local community there. So I went and met her down there. It turned out that she was actually, when I turned up to the venue, it was actually a church and it was St John at Hackney. And then acoustically, I just said, oh, I can't really DJ in here, but I'd definitely like to help out or do whatever I can, you know, get involved. So yeah, that's how. Weirdly, from a, from a DJ set at Secret Garden Party. Did the church take much convincing? The admin lady at the church at the time was a girl called Emily, who was just really sound, a musician herself, got it, and straddled the spheres of church life and music life really well. And she could see that it had potential, basically. Like, she for sure, had that there'd been odd shows there. Like I went to a Chaz and Dave gig there because Father Rob, who was the, basically the, the top guy at the time, was a big Chaz and Dave fan, so they'd booked them. So there, there'd been weird stuff going on, and it had been—it literally had to slap me ten times in the face before I was like, maybe we could do something ongoing here. And how did you uh, figure to approach the bookings? What, what did you think would work well there? Uh, well, I knew that band stuff would sound pretty bad because of the acoustics it's really rev like the, the re reverb there is huge to be honest it, i was sitting around in my pants in my bedroom with a mate at the time and just decided on artists that we thought we liked we were like let's just try and book these people i would say it was brazen and completely stupid like idiotically you know committing 50 grand up front without knowing we were um, we didn't realise the expense of each show, for example. Um, it was just naive. The whole thing was kind of naive. And at no point were we planning on this becoming an ongoing series or that the church would eventually, ha you know, be attracting enough business to, to employ somebody who actually was facilitating the events like Kay, you know. It, none of the, there was no, none of that existed. I'm at St John's in Hackney, in a nice little grassy area out the front of the church. St John's is located on Lower Clapton Road, which is quite a lively part of the neighbourhood. The top of Mare Street is just around the corner, and that always seems to be a spot where people like to hang out. In fact, the promoters behind this wall, who used to do parties at Plastic People, just opened a cool little basement bar right there. So check that out if you're ever in this part of London. Now, St John's is something of a hackney landmark. It's a pretty grand old building that went up in 1792, and you can fit around 2,000 people in there. 
Now, it's important to stress at this point that we're not discussing some abandoned old building that a plucky promoter moved into to stage events. This is a fully functioning and busy church that is very much a pillar of its local community. So it's curious, to say the least, that St John's has become one of the key venues for live electronic music in London. So the scene inside upon arrival is fairly typical of any gig. There are people handing over tickets on their phones and getting their hands stamped. But then your eye might wander over a little bit and catch sight of the enormous tomb that sits next to the entrance here. When you come to gigs at St John's, you can definitely sense that people become a bit quieter, a bit more reflective when they enter the church. I guess that many of these people aren't regularly in places of worship and it definitely shows in their behavior. Tim Hecker is headlining tonight, and there'll be a mixture of people seated and standing, most of whom will be in the sort of hushed state you find at experimental electronic music performances. I should mention that it also really does go off from time to time at St. John's. I came here a while back to see Jacques Green and Corliss, and the place really came alive. The venue's very capable of putting on really big productions with fantastic lighting. Resit is playing right now, and the church's nave is extremely dark and full of gloomy smoke. From the upper tier, you can barely see the thousand or so people who are down on the floor, but you can sense the enormity of the space. Events have been taking place here since 2013 and in that time they've had names like William Basinski, Nils Fram, Actress, Laurel Halo, Arca and Julia Holter. Many of the events have been part of the St John's Session series and this is again the case this evening. Tim Hecker, who's uh, about to go on, is fresh from the release of Love Streams. This is an excellent new album which came out on 4AD a few weeks back. Tuesday after the gig and it's a lovely bright morning in Hackney. We're here today to try to get a flavour of what it's like at St John's on a typical day. Set for an event this evening is currently in full flow. We can hear a rehearsal taking place in the next room. There are flight cases strewn everywhere and guys wearing gloves and utility belts are looking very busy. Now today feels like a perfect example of the two different sides of St John's coming together. In one half of the building there is the technical crew, people managing the event and so on. And then through this set of doors are some of the staff and parishioners who make up the lifeblood of St John's. Kate Walters is the bridge between these two worlds. She's responsible for overall management of the events here at St. John's, is therefore very cognizant of the two different sides of this environment coming together. 
Kate, there's loads going on today here. You want to tell us about what's going down? Yes, we've got Rufus Wainwright performing tonight and it's quite a busy day for us. Normally Tuesday at St John's is a community day. We have a food bank here from 11 till 1 and a credit union. So we've got the worlds colliding really between the gigs economy at St John's and um, the local people of Hackney. You've uh, kind of got these two worlds coexisting simultaneously. How do you maintain that balance? Keeping the two sides of St John's kind of happy and working well together is always something we really strive to do as best as we can at the venue. There's a lot that goes into running a venue in a church. Um, things like we have to accommodate morning prayer in the side chapel at 9am every morning. Um, just things like keeping the ethos of the church protected, um, protecting a grade two star listed building from, from damage and wear and tear, which as you can imagine being 1400 capacity will, will naturally occur. Um, so yeah, there's a lot that goes on with my role, but increasingly as the gigs have become more frequent, I'm building a really great team of freelancers who really know the building. So I guess people listening to this podcast might be aware of uh, St. John's because of the uh, big electronic gigs you guys have been doing here, but um, you also alluded to some of the, the bigger pop names that have been coming through. You want to tell us about a few of the names you've, uh, you've hosted? Yeah, I'd be delighted to. Well, last year was a really groundbreaking year for us. Um, we were able to, to host quite a few high-profile um, album launches, such as Jamie XX, uh, Block Party, Daughter. Uh, then you may have heard of Coldplay, who did their album launch through BBC Radio 1 in December. Um, and then we had a, a really great gig February this year, which was Florence and the Machine in association with War Child. So Kate, it's an incredible old building. Do you want to maybe give us a whistle-stop tour? We're just starting out in our dressing room space. Um, we've got two lovely dressing rooms at St John's, one with a piano, um, and now we're just going down onto the ground floor where we have a food bank happening at the moment. So we're just going into Herbman Hall, which is our large side hall adjacent to the main gig space where we have all kinds of activities, like we have a maths and English school for young people, we have kids dance classes, kids drama classes, uh, and as mentioned, we've had, we have a food bank and a credit union run by our parishioners. So I'm just introducing you to Peter and Beryl, who are two of our parishioners. Uh, Peter used to be a church warden here, and they're just going to tell you a little bit about the church that they're running today. Well, this is Tuesday morning. As you see, uh, there is a food bank collection point here. Obviously, the things you're doing here are serving an important function within the local community. Could you tell us a bit about the um, other activities that take place during the week here? Well, well, we are a church on Sunday morning. We have church services here. Uh, during the week, weekdays at nine o'clock, there's morning prayer. What goes on in the church in the week, apart from the religious services, is that often, um, and there's one tonight, I think, uh, a concert or a show or a gig takes place and we've become quite an important, well-known venue for that sort of thing. And our purpose in the church's purpose in, in opening the building up for that it's twofold. It's to uh, raise money for the church, because it does raise money, but also to open the doors of the church to people who would not normally even dream of stepping into a church. They come here for a concert or a gig, and then they sometimes realise that they're actually in a church. Was uh, that at all a difficult decision to arrive at, to, to open the doors to kind of secular events? There, there are some of our congregation who are not very much at ease with this because the whole building is turned upside down each week between the two Sundays. It's going on now, here, at this moment. It's something we've done only in the past seven or eight years. We're an open church. Does um, this meeting of worlds create any uh, strange situations for you guys? I'm sure it does, but I'm not sufficiently familiar with, with the, the gigs and... and and the shows that go on here to know quite. But it must do, it must be a contrast. We're licensed premises for, um, for the sale of, uh, of liquor because of that, and that's an extraordinary contrast in itself. Certainly some of the younger congregation come to the gigs, but for the majority, um, many of the congregation wouldn't know what's going on during the week. 
Incidentally, we have a very active bell ringing team. We have a tower with ten bells in it, and they're quite very, very keen enthusiasts. just walk through into the main venue where we're still in the midst of a build for uh, for the Rufus Framework gig this this evening. Being in the church's um, main space, the nave, um, sort of gets a sense of the uh, the scale, enormous stained glass windows and the and the light pouring in. The space of the church is a very large um, Georgian building. The space of the church is impressive when a gig is going on, the lighting and the sound. But even without that, in the daytime um, and even at night, the empty space of the church, vast space with very good acoustics, is, is beautifully illuminated by the plain glass windows high on the walls all around, at all the four sides, and the sun in, or the moon in different positions during the day and night and at different seasons of the year illuminate this space beautifully it's a wonderful thing to to observe at any time how would you describe the atmosphere at gigs here what sort of effect does that have we've got beautiful acoustics uh, naturally being a church that was kind of originally built for 4,000 people I think we're we're really proud of the sound that we get in the building it's it's a complex operation of full venue draping which really helps us to to play to the strengths of the church's acoustics but not overwhelm the sort of the musicians on stage and the audiences people really get quite hypnotized in the space this is the hour from resident advisor still to come on the hour ra's editorial staff will be discussing the relationship between ancient greece and drum and bass but next up is over the counter the idea is that we visit some of the world's best record shops and shoot the breeze with the person behind the counter. For the first one, Will Lynch went to Record Loft in Berlin's Kreuzberg neighborhood to meet Christian Pannenburg, the shop's owner. The vinyl market continues to thrive in Berlin and among the city's many record shops, Record Loft stands out for its relaxed atmosphere and deep stock of secondhand vinyl. It's the sort of place where you can very easily while away an entire afternoon. So I'm standing in a courtyard, or a Hof, as they're called here in Berlin, in the middle of Kreuzberg, um, tucked away just by Autobahnstrasse, a kind of busy road near Kupasator. Um There's a series of these two kind of back alley courtyards that lead up to Record Loft. Since it arrived a few years ago, quickly became one of Berlin's uh, sort of key destinations for um, record nerds or people looking for somewhere to dig. Um, it's often recommended alongside more classic spots like Hardwax or Space Hall, but it offers something quite different from those places. A lot of record stores in Berlin give you a small and nicely curated selection that's um, fairly manageable. Record Loft, on the other hand, presents you with what feels like a kind of warehouse of old records. It's not for the faint of heart, it's really for serious diggers. To properly take advantage of it, you need to post up here for an afternoon or a whole day and just plow through, uh, hoping you'll get that one weird thing that there's no chance you could find in most of the city's other shops. Um, so we're going to talk to Christian Pannenberg, who's the shop's proprietor and kind of a classic record nerd vinyl merchant, quintessential, you know, old school music head. So yeah, we're going to see what he has to say about the shop. So to start, would you mind giving me kind of a brief history of Record Loft? Ah. How did it start? What was the original idea? How did it turn into what it is now? Yeah, that's that's kind of a weird thing. Um, I actually never really intended to open a record shop, and maybe that's the, the most interesting thing about it, because I never had this um, phase where I had to kind of like come up with all these uh, concepts and ideas. It was more that I got pushed into it through just uh, dealing with records and growing and you know like I was kind of getting really fascinated by these old uh, 
disco records, what was called cosmic at that time, you know, the Masiera stuff and so on. And, sure. And these were incredibly hard to find records and, and you had to travel and you had to, you know, you can't pay like 100, 150 euros uh, a shot, you know, just to build up a little collection to play in bars and so on. That's where the lag work started and then uh, at some point you find the same record and then you have to swap it and then all of a sudden you're dealing with shops and providing them with copies of whatever and at some point uh, the people I was kind of um, related to, they, um, they put me... Uh, into a situation where they simply said like Christian um, if this grows more uh, we can't deal with it anymore you really have to think what you want to do and at that point a friend of mine had a little office which uh, he could rent out to me and actually we wanted to just uh, expand into online sales or whatever just to see what happens and all of a sudden we were selling uh, records out of that office uh, on a daily basis and the neighbors were uh, complaining at some point and then finally I found this space here and um, that was also really really lucky because it was exactly what I was looking for. street uh, window kind of shop my idea was really to only deal with DJs because that's a little bit uh, where I come from and it's also something where the music is treated in a way that it's not about the cover it's not about near mint it's not like a collector thing it's not um, hustling about prices or so that's not my home you know and I, that makes me really uh, uncomfortable the way that music is seen by uh, record collectors because it's about the music in the end, it's not about the artifact or the copy or whatever. So you basically, you want to sell records to DJs. That's the main objective for you, I guess. Well, we deal with dance music and I guess uh, most of the people who buy 12-inch techno and house records uh, buy them for playing them on, on a set of turntables. And nowadays, most of them are DJs. I mean, I remember when, when I was buying, starting to buy records, it was like a hobby for a lot of people. I think that's why in the 90s the thing was so big uh, and the labels were uh, pushing so many copies because uh, there was a hobby aspect to it. But I mean, that's also due to the idea of uh, every club having two or three resident DJs and that's it. You know? Now it's a lot more fluent or whatever, but yeah, that's I guess that's the people who come. I know what they are looking for and so I can cater to them. So earlier on you were kind of saying that you didn't really intend to start a record store. It was more like your own personal collection spun out of control until it became a record store, sort of organically. Yeah, in my life, yeah, there were always times where I was like um, manically collecting records. Uh, I had a, a electrofunk collection of a couple of thousand at some point. And then all of a sudden, there's the, there was a time, you know, one moment where you're like standing in front of it and you're like, dude, this kind of breakdance uh, uh, attitude, somehow, that's all wrong. And then all of a sudden, from one day to the other, it, it all doesn't make sense anymore. And then you have to get rid of it and, and try something new, you know, whatever, you know, touches you. I'm not collecting records myself anymore because, uh, yeah, I, that I have to save myself from, from that mania. But, uh, so you have no records at home? Nah, I've got like 500 records at home and every time I take one record home, another one has to uh, come to the shop because otherwise, I, yeah. And it's also for the shop itself, you know, if you if you kind of like uh, keep the best bits and pieces for yourself, that's uh, degrading the whole idea of it. to go to some basement and talk to the guy and see what he has and also like how the things are connected how what what is in this collection how 
do the things relate to each other? What kind of musical voyage has the person been through, you know? What's your musical personal voyage? How, how did records come to mean so much to you? I don't want to talk about my mom's record collection and so on, because that's what uh, everybody's talking about. Obviously, there was a Kraftwerk record in there, but uh, you know, let's not get into the details of that. But um, the first records I bought were, were this... Uh, native tongues kind of uh, hip-hop thing and what I realized from it is really that there is this um, the club as as a uh, alternative family as some sort of movement as some kind of place of of spiritual shelter of giving a meaning to yourself or to the people there sharing emotions and so on that this is really the the uh, essence of also what I'm looking for when I'm going out and what uh, also makes me sad going out if it's not there. That's what I was uh, looking for in music to find something I couldn't have myself being this immigrant. So that kind of shelter you're describing that people find in a club, um, maybe in a way this shop is also something like that? I hope so. I mean, the, the point, that's the real problem, to keep that alive and to have uh, a surrounding where, where this kind of notion is validated or so, is, is uh, taken serious. I think that's the mission of the record shop. Here in Berlin, we've got this very strange sort of, how do you call it, um, concentration, yeah. There's uh, kids and, and people coming here and it's the uh, last uh, resort where they can still uh, see this kind of culture and th these kind of places. And that also comes with the uh, responsibility you know, because uh, that's what the people want to hear. That's what DJing is about, not just playing records, but also taking all the people you're playing for in your arms and kind of like hugging them in a musical way. You know? So how did you get from like, it was a record store and then you started putting on in stores and then you put on a couple other events as well? Yeah, yeah, that was, um, the idea of the in store was from, from day one something that I wanted to push because that's also why I got these speakers and the whole kind of thing. People like the idea. I mean, we're dealing now with names I could have never imagined. Uh, like who? Like the Boo Williams Jovan thing was off the hook, like Jovan started to play. The message uh, at 10 o'clock and at 2:30 uh, we were still in here, dimmed the light, and people were dancing. You know, and he had uh, 100. Like uh, I saw him a couple of times, and I think that this was uh, his uh, emotionally favorite gig for a long time. You could see how he was like just working it and working it for the people. Tell me about the records that you played. Yeah, the three records I chose. Um, the first one is I uh, Would Mutwata on uh, Balearic Social. The second record is from uh, Paul Johnson from his like from this WEP Second Coming. The third one is Unit Mobius. That is uh, the start of the whole uh, West Coast uh, Holland Netherlands movement. They put up a manifest that nowadays people still are looking uh, looking into for inspiration for what is underground and how far <laughs> underground you could be. On the other side, it's a record that, that uh, kind of picked up a price. It's exclusive and uh, rare and collectible and somehow the object has kind of flipped the real intentions of the musicians. Right. And that's uh, another side of it that makes it, from my point of view, more interesting. Is that ever complicated, that the kind of value of these records can undermine the original values of house music, maybe? Yeah, of course. I mean, but, but this is hipster shit. Uh, you're playing history. You're playing not the now. You're not creating something new. And every record was five euros at some time. And you will see how some things will become horribly expensive. Craving for something that is out of reach should not be... Uh, what is determining your relationship with music, you know?
That was Will Lynch chatting to Christian Pannenberg from Record Loft in Berlin. You're listening to the first edition of The Hour, a new podcast from Resident Advisor. So you'll maybe know that we get together sometimes on the exchange to have a roundtable discussion where we basically talk about our favourite artists and music. We like the format a lot, so it felt natural that we'd get together in the same spirit for the first edition of The Hour. I gave everyone a very simple brief in the lead up to this one, which was who or what has defined 2016 for you so far? So I wanted to start our discussion today in Berlin by introducing everyone. Uh, We've got a couple of the usual suspects who you might remember from some of our previous podcasts, namely Will Lynch, RA's associate editor. Hey, Will. Hello. And Angus Finlayson, who's one of our extremely lovely staff writers. Hello, thank you very much. And then we've also got a couple of new participants today, uh, both from Australia. Matt, another one of our Berlin-based staff writers. Hey, how's it going? And Mark Smith is RA's tech editor. Ahoy. So Mark, I'm starting with you and you've chosen to discuss a subject that touches on uh, geometry, ancient Greece and drum and bass. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound like a very sexy topic, but it's just becoming slightly more relevant in um, electronic dance music circles. So they're called Euclidean rhythms and it's something that's been pretty trendy for modular synthesizer users and drum and bass producers and stuff like that. But basically it's a it's an algorithm which can evenly distribute beats across a given sequence. And so this algorithm also explains things to do with string theory and nuclear physics, but it's also a handy way to explain a lot of rhythms in music around the world, but especially non-Western music. So this all comes from an ancient Greek mathematician called Euclid, but there's um, a more recent guy called Toussaint who wrote a pdf about it which is available online and so you can literally go in and um, take these rhythms and insert them into midi clips in ableton and instantly come up with something like a non-western exotic rhythmic cycle certain people have been using this in interesting ways Um, don't dj especially out of dusseldorf who's part of the discount crew has been using them along with this type of synthesis called physical modeling which is a way to make sound sound acoustically accurate. So with using this physical modeling with these algorithms, it's kind of a way to instantly come up with this kind of sub-Saharan exotic sound, which is has a lot of implications and has a lot of a lot to get into. But um, yeah, it's certainly very interesting. So okay, let's pull back from this a second because this all sounds um, incredibly technical and drilled down and quite nerdy. What are the um, effects, what are the palpable effects of what we're talking about on the music and on dance floors, by extension? Well, it makes the start and end point of any given rhythm sort of obscure. So, like, there's no clear pulse and the beginning and end is kind of a bit more up to the dancer. So it can give these kind of loops when multiple rhythms are laid over the top of each other. It it inspires movement in a way which is completely different to like a a regular 4-4 pulse and it's kind of infectious in a way which is, you know, goes beyond your best instincts. It's kind of um, some of a primal impulse perhaps. But like someone like Felix K is using this in drum and bass as well and it almost has not a lot to do with the dance floor. It's just a way of having these cycles. Felix K and the Hidden Hawaii guys have been using this a lot as well, specifically to sort of draw a, draw a link between drum and bass and techno. And an interesting way that they're doing that is, you know, with these faster tempos, when you have these Euclidean rhythms, different pulses emerge. You can hear like how a techno tempo would fit with a drum and bass tempo, even though they're completely different and shouldn't fit. 
or work together at all. And um, that's something that ASC and Sam KDC have been explicitly exploring in their grey area stuff. They're literally able to DJ two tracks simultaneously, which are completely different tempos just because of the way that the rhythms are subdivided. So as a dancer to this style of music, it would be a case of uh, choosing which rhythm you're going to lock into, I presume. Yeah, and I mean, the, the thing about it is, is that it definitely evokes some of that sub-Saharan rhythmic feeling. And so this is a way of rhythmic cycling which has existed for, you know, centuries on the, on the continent, but it's only just moving into dance music context as we understand them now and you know so that you can make a lot out of this being something new but in a way it's just a recontextualization of something which has existed for a very long time elsewhere this is something that could gain momentum during this year like are people likely to go out and hear music in this style it has been around for a while but it's only just you know poking its head out there into broader circles but you know, maybe it's just one of those things where maths just isn't the golden formula to making people actually dance. You could really have a go at mixing don't DJ stuff over some, you know, more standard sounding house or techno music. It seems like an interesting time to at least give that stuff a try. And there seem to be more and more sets where people are willing to, like, take that sort of risk. So hopefully we hear more about it. Do you think it means anything that one of the key sort of people doing this, uh, goes by the name don't dj i don't know like the specifics of what their angle on it is but it's definitely a big can of worms and i'd be interested to see how they talk about it So Angus, you've chosen to talk about the latest albums from Inga Copeland and Dean Blunt, who of course worked together as Hype Williams for a number of years. Um, you reviewed both records favourably, particularly the Dean Blunt one. But I know with the Dean Blunt record, there would have been a fair few people out there who put these albums on and uh, quite quickly turned them off. Yeah, I mean, I think this is partly what intrigues me about them, is that as albums to kind of really like wrestle with and really listen to repeatedly and think about and try and divine what they're trying to tell you. There's a lot there, they're extremely rich and very satisfying, things to kind of unpick. But maybe as an album to kind of like put on, having heard perhaps Dean Blunt's recent solo albums, which have been getting increasingly kind of like traditionally musical, um, or, or indeed Inga Copeland's last album, Because I'm Worth It, which is also just some great songs really maybe you'd you'd be a little puzzled and a little kind of perturbed by the way they're presented yeah i've been using that exact language don't just put this on yeah. sit down with this yeah absolutely but i think in a sense that's also why they're sort of a high point for both artists um i mean to, to sort of go back and explain a little bit um they're both uh, albums about london in some way the copeland album which is under her new name uh, lalina uh, it's called Live in Paris. It's a document of um, a performance she did at RBMA in Paris last year. It's kind of a collection of her tracks, um, some old, plenty new, but the visual is also quite important. So her performance includes a projection of a Monopoly board. Um, and as it goes on, the board kind of fills up with property and then like catches on fire. Um, and there's there's obviously something there about you know the property market and the way that London's feeling increasingly inaccessible. Um, the Blunt album, which is uh, as part of the group Baby Father, um, that's kind of more about he grew up in Hackney, and that's more about this kind of like inner city experience. Um, it's it's presented like a a kind of DIY mixtape or a pirate radio show with this guy DJ Escrow kind of like hosting it. It's still not clear if it's 
blunt. With his voice yeah. pitched up, yeah, it's, who knows really at this point. Further ahead, you know them ones? I remember my man said, don't waste time doing a crime if it's already been done, you know? Don't waste time doing a crime if it's already been done. Do you know how real that is? The feds know these things, you know, you've got to be smarter than that. That's why I'm here, you know? Not just to play choose that, but to show man certain things, innit? You can rise up and be better, like, you can, like, you know, like, advance yourself, innit? You ain't got to be doing these, like, fuck these little things on what You can, like, move up and move onward, do you know them ones? I'm chatting too much, innit? Let me just play the fucking tune. There's kind of, like, lots of allusions to, like, kind of crime and poverty and um, this evocation of uh, that particular kind of, like, world is is very powerful it interests me how both of these um get their point across with things beyond just the music um itself yeah whether it's this this dj dj esco character kind of like chatting over the tracks or um this kind of visual theatrical element from inga copeland which you know you would completely miss if you just like stuck it on in the background is it possible with uh, thinking about the blunt album is it possible to just enjoy this on a musical level i mean does it stand up to its like last two records uh it's difficult to say i mean it, it has kind of skits on it which can be an obstacle but then again you know there's plenty of like hip-hop albums that have skits on them that um you know people still listen to and love probably not ones that repeat the same thing over and over and over that's true yeah there's three tracks which just loop um somebody saying this makes me proud to be british repeatedly um which yeah, do start to kind of grate a little bit. This makes me proud to be British. 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 This makes me proud. So you were talking before about how um, you feel as though both artists have achieved some of the most mature and like you know well considered work of their careers, but um, you're saying before that possibly uh, in doing so this might make the records inaccessible to a wide audience yeah um i mean in a sense you know if you look at the, the things they did as hype williams it was always inaccessible it was always difficult um and they were always kind of using these techniques and kind of interrogating the format of the music and giving you kind of like uh, easter egg like messages but i think before the effect was always kind of mysterious. Um, they always made sure that you couldn't just get one kind of clear, you couldn't make one clear analysis of it. Um, whereas now they've, they both clearly have a message they want to convey and they're being quite purposeful about how they get that across, which means that you can't just ignore the message and enjoy it basically. Maybe this is limiting them, but yeah, in a sense it feels like what they've been working towards all along really. So Matt, you wanted to talk about Bin, who's now being thought of as a leading artist in the wave of music and DJs that kind of uh, came up in the wake of Minimal, if you like. Um, you saw him get polonised at Panorama Bar at the beginning of March and you wrote a review of the party and got a load of attention on RA. Why do you think he is the one for people or why has he been uh, thought of in such like lofty terms, if you like? That's a good question. I think a lot of those guys... Uh, playing really nice tracks, but they might not have the best DJ skills. How to read a crowd, things that you learn basically from being an experienced DJ. And I think Bin is probably the pick of the bunch when it comes to that kind of thing. Reads a crowd really well, has obviously spent, has obviously spent a lot of time on the dance floor, is always a Get Pearlinized, huge Zip fan. And I think this basically translates into his DJ sets. So when you do catch him at a good club, 
in full flight. It's a really impressive and kind of immersive experience. Which was the case on this night, presumably. Exactly, and what he does is actually pretty difficult. Contrary to popular belief, I think, he's not playing loops or even minimal music. It's minimalistic, but it's, he's not playing like Little Lobos tracks or, I don't know, that many Pearl on records. Sure. The tracks he plays, lots of short changes over time, uh, lots of short changes in short time, short intros. It's just, yeah, to put, it, to put together a set with those kind of tracks and do it so the groove is steady is a hard feat. Does it feel as though at this stage he's receiving the kind of uh, wider recognition from the house and techno community that perhaps he's deserved for a while? Yeah, that's also fascinating because I, to my ears, this music is actually pretty accessible. All the it, rhythms are interesting, like it's jacking. So, I, yeah, I don't think there's been as much crossover as there could be. It's interesting though, he does this thing with Ono as a, who's his good friend, has known for a while. This thing called Treatment. Anyway, they just played at uh, this club in Ukraine called Closer. And all, like it was a two-roomed party, Treatment in one room, and then Delta Functionen and Answer Code Request in the other. And I don't think like the pairing was an accident. And I think him and like Ben and Delta Functionen, for example, are both playing like similar records. Maybe Delta Functionen's a bit harder, but if you're someone that likes this kind of broken beat kind of techno, if you go to Berghain all the time, you're gonna enjoy a treatment set, mm. which I, yeah, which most people haven't realised. I think, I guess it's because they're playing in, uh, they're still booked by parties, or by promoters that have a big following with minimal fans, sure, and lots of people who are into techno are not gonna go to those. Are, they're not gonna go to Hopatosa or CDV. So I can't help but notice that um, a lot of the most popular content we've run on RA in the past 12 months has been from uh, artists from this like similar bracket. Um, there's a Nicholas Lutz podcast, Barack feature, Herodot podcast, Vera feature. Um, you wrote recently Art of DJing, Melody, Slow Life. Why now? What's going on here? I think it's evolved. It's not about minimal the genre anymore. All the music is still stripped back. But there's, there aren't too many people still trying to make Bill Lobos style tracks. Even the Romanians, who are the main group making quote-unquote minimal, it's still become more melodic and therefore more accessible, I think. So it's almost as the, the reduced spirit and the emphasis on subtlety remains, but the palette's kind of shifted yeah, from exactly. like clicks, cuts, electronic sounds towards something more musical yeah absolutely it's not as abstract maybe there are connecting threads but the the actual styles of music they're playing and making varies a lot it's like this like this bin party that i was just talking about you'd go from some like weird slowed down electro track to some loopy house thing then back to some broken beat techno but yeah the connecting thread is this still minimalistic still stripped down in the approach to partying and to some extent DJing yeah yeah comes off the back of a recent trip to Tbilisi, the Georgian capital, and uh, I'm guessing various conversations you've had with um, other industry figures. Do you want to explain? Yeah, sure. For whatever reason, the, I would say the past few months for me, um, the most interesting conversations I've had have been people tipping me off to interesting new clubs or interesting new scenes outside the usual hubs. The first one that I heard about was Tbilisi where there's a great club called Bassiani. I spent some time there recently, and upon closer inspection, there's a nice little cluster of other events too, some with international DJs, some that are more strictly underground, and they also have their share of kind of like open airs and um, little festivals and things like that. Like, um, you know, there's, there's a proper community with, with a nice kind of a frothy scene going on, and it's, you know, all locals at the parties, and the whole thing has kind of a nice... Um, buzz about it 
I've also been sort of interested in um, Belgrade, Serbia, where I guess there's sort of the um, one of the main cornerstones of the scene is this place called Drugstore, or there's, you know, kind of a gaggle of respected local DJs such as um, Tiana T. Um, and I guess Belgrade and uh, Tbilisi both share this interesting quality, which is they're both places where the dust is, is settling or has recently settled from um, some kind of, you know, political upheaval. They both had civil wars in the past um, couple decades. And uh, in, in Georgia's case, you know, before that, it was part of the USSR. Um, but in, in a way, the past 10 or 15 years has been the country's um, first period of stability, possibly ever. Um, and the party scenes there are kind of earning comparisons to things like Berlin just after the wall fell, where it's not just that it's fun or that the music's good, it's that there's a, um, a, a very potent feeling of um, optimism sort of uh, embedded within the, the scene itself. Um, like for instance in Tbilisi with Bassiani, it's not just that Bassiani is a good club, it's, it's actually a symbol for the city's progress, the country's progress, or a symbol of um, sort of the hopeful future that these that these people have that um they might not have expected you know that, that when they were growing up wasn't guaranteed um and i guess for me part of what makes it compelling is you know i think part of the classic uh rave ideal or sort of what makes this whole culture a bit deeper than just music and partying is these situations where there's a greater sense of meaning within this activity of going out and it reminds me of um I think it was Leyland Kirby said something about how the first Acid House raves in uh, the second summer of love, he said it wasn't just that they were fun, it was that there was this feeling that maybe no one was consciously aware of or that they would struggle to articulate, but there's a feeling of like, the future's ours, our lives are going to be great, and you know, we can do whatever we want. Um, and that was kind of fueling these, these events, and that's sort of what would separate them from what we've got today. I love going out in Berlin and... Um, plenty of other cities but you do feel a difference um i guess compared to somewhere like tbilisi clubbing in berlin feels like i wouldn't i guess i'd stop short of saying like a consumer experience but it's like this is a cultural thing that the city just offers that everyone expects um and it was here before, you know when we were still little kids and it's it's not um surprising or or unexpected that, that it exists. Um, in fact, you know, most cities in the world, uh, if there's not like a decent club, um, that scene is like a failure or something, or like um, people get irritated if it's not there. Uh, basically, there's a feeling of um, taking it for granted, I guess, even, even when it's really good. Um, and so there's something kind of inspiring about seeing a place where it's the opposite. It's actually people feel incredibly fortunate to have, to have this available to them. Um, and, and it means something um, very important to them, I guess. Um, at this point in time, has the uh, kind of cluster of clubs you mentioned uh, been experiencing techno tourism? Uh, no, at least uh, not really that I'm aware of. But um, I think, uh, in a way, that's kind of part of what makes it interesting. Is like um, this. I mean, if you think about the idea of techno tourism, it kind of ties into what I said about the consumer experience, where the club scene becomes. A commodity that people spend money to experience themselves um, you know not to stretch it too much but almost the same way you travel to go to Disney World or something like that like you base a vacation around spending money at a techno club um, which you know if you think of the way people kind of uh, uh, roll their eyes a little bit at the idea of techno tourism like I think that's why like you can tell that it feels separated from the original authentic situation of, of, uh, of raving that said, um, I do think there's an element of uh, we've now got a generation of people who uh, were themselves kind of um, uh, techno tourists in the sense that they got to travel to other cities and, and see what the techno parties they were like, um, and they took those ideas back home. So, so even if you grew up somewhere that um, didn't have its own uh, rave scene throughout the 90s or whatever, you might still have experienced that and you can kind of bring those ideas home and do something of your own.
So that was the first edition of the hour. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next month with another blend of documentaries, discussion and interviews.